Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, everyone, go ahead and move back to your seats. Good to see you all. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to uh, the last day of Christmas, a.k.a. Epiphany, a.k.a. El Día de los Reyes, or Three Kings Day. Um, How many of you are Puerto Rican? Uh, (laughs) uh, Jenna, you, I could safely say you're the whitest person in here. Uh, Okay, yeah. Did you, uh, Angel, did you guys celebrate Dia de los Reyes? So it's really neat. I, you know, obviously I'm not Puerto Rican, but I didn't, so I didn't grow up with this, but in a lot of Latino cultures, um, this is the day for receiving gifts. So in Puerto Rico, they get, each kid gets a little shoebox and they fill it with grass for the camels, kind of, sort of like we would do carrots for, um, you know, for Santa's reindeer. And you put that box underneath your bed and then when you wake up in the morning, uh, the kings, the three kings, have brought you a gift. And so it's kind of like a nice little extra, uh, you know, part to the season. And I love that because, you know, in our modern culture, Christmas is a day, right? Like the, the December 25th, that's Christmas, and then it's over, uh, and then we just kind of amble on with the rest of the year. And I think it's always a tragedy then when you see, like, you know, Christmas trees on December 26th are thrown out or whatever. It's like, no, 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 we've got more time. We get, we get to celebrate more. And that's, again, what I love about the church calendar is it, it helps to immerse us deeper and deeper in the story of Jesus um, to inform us of who it is that we worship and who it is that we're following. And so uh, today we get to celebrate Epiphany, which is kind of another seasonal transition that we're going from the Christmas season into the Epiphany season that's going to lead us towards Lent and then Holy Week culminating in Easter. Um, So I've been thinking a lot over the past couple weeks of like, what's the approach to epiphany, especially when we're looking at these magi, wise men, kings, as they're called in different traditions. And I think this is what's so key today, that epiphany reminds us that our faith is about humbly seeking King Jesus. I think that's what today is really about. Not only are we recognizing, traditionally speaking, that with the, the bringing in, as God brings these magi, these, these you know, wise men from the east into the story, it means that it's good news, not just for the Jews, but all Gentiles. Raise your hand if you're a Gentile or a goyim. Woo! That's all of us, pretty much. Um, we're all, we all get a part to play in the story as well. That's what we're, we're remembering today. But the quality that I want us to think about today when we're looking at the magi is this uh, this humble curiosity that they demonstrate in their faith. And we're going to set it up against some of the other characters that we see in the story. Um, we're gonna, in this story, we're going to see Herod, who was the king over Judea at the time. Um, and we're going to be looking at him as kind of an archetype of people who use Jesus, um, tokenize Jesus in a way to keep a grip on what we have, kind of a lack of humility. Herod lacked humility. He sees Jesus as a threat. He's going to try to use Jesus to justify his own lifestyle. And many of us, we all have a little bit of Herod in us. Uh, And then we're also going to be looking at the chief priests and the teachers of the law, who are people who mistake knowledge uh, with intimacy, which is something we talk about a lot here, trying to differentiate, knowing a lot of things about Jesus or knowing a lot about the Bible and actually following him. 
Uh, So where Herod has a lack of humility, the chief priests have a lack of curiosity. But in the Magi, we find those things coming together. So I'm going to pray, and we're going to read this story. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this Christmas season um, that even, you know, and it's no coincidence that it even takes place three days, or it begins three days after the darkest day of the year, that from here on out, it just gets brighter and brighter, literally, and it gets brighter and brighter as we look at your story um, of the gathering power uh, that comes through the kingdom of King Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray today as we're, as we're here and we're positioned that you would give us soft hearts um, and courage to come before you open to allow your Holy Spirit um, to speak to us, to recognize, you know, being a Christian isn't a one and done thing, but it's this ongoing process as we're continually laying it all out before you and asking you, what do we pick up? What do we put down? What do you want to draw to our attention in this season so that we can be more faithful to you and eventually we can look more and more like Jesus day by day? And that's our, that's our prayer today, Lord. I pray for a space of safety, uh, a space of curiosity and humility that we don't want to leave this place in the same condition that we were in when, when we entered, uh, but we want to be changed by having met you. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So this is going to be Matthew chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, and I want you to be hearing those kind of three archetypical characters that we're going to be exploring in this story. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, During the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, Where is the one who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod heard this, he was disturbed, and all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. In Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod called the Magi secretly and found out from them the exact time the star had appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me, so that I too may go and worship him. After they had heard the king, they went on their way. And the star they had seen when it rose went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overjoyed. And coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary, and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their country by another route. So there's a few kind of you know, things that we can infer from this story that aren't inherently there. You know, I I feel like almost like Matthew's, he's just trying to give you the main points of the story, but there's a lot that we can pick apart that's kind of reading in between the lines. I think, first of all, what really strikes me about this story, you know, a lot of times we say, we sing even, like, we three kings, and so we imagine these three guys with crowns that kind of enter in. Um, But even if there was just three of them, this is a procession. This is an ordeal. It must have been a big deal um, for all of Jerusalem to be kind of disturbed what they're seeing happen. 
um, and for Herod to be so worried for it to have reached his ears. So we're not just talking about three guys slipping in at night, kind of tipping their hats at this kid and then moving on. There was this procession. So you can imagine like, I don't know what would be crazy would be like, you know, like a hundred Canadians just walking down the street in Orlando and you're like, what? What are they doing? You know, in their Canadian tuxedos, that's how we'd recognize them, just like denim top to bottom. They'd say sorry all the time. You'd be like, oh my gosh, what's happening? And Mayor Buddy Dyer would be like, wait, why are there so many Canadians all of a sudden? It's kind of like that. Maybe, maybe a little bit more threatening because there's a history between Babylon and uh, Judea. But the whole city is shaken by the arrival of these guys. It's a big deal. And I think secondly, when we're looking at these guys, we have to recognize this is not an easy trip. They don't just hop on an airplane that goes from Tehran to Jerusalem and that's it. This is taking them weeks. So this is not an easy journey that these guys are going on with all of their procession and their, you know, their animals and their servants and, you know, whoever else. We don't know who all was with them, but this isn't an easy trip. And I think even in that, I recognize, oh my goodness, surprise, surprise, sometimes seeking Jesus out is inconvenient, okay? Now, how many of you, like, you know, in this season, especially through Advent and Christmas at the culmination of 2020, it kind of feels inconvenient to seek Jesus out. It's not as easy as maybe it used to be. Well, I think the courage that we find in this story is like, yeah, guess what? It was never really that convenient to seek him out. But the activity is in the seeking. Jesus reminds us later on um, in his own story in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. And what this reminds me is that our faith, the Christian faith, it's dynamic and it's relational. It's about movement. It's about activity. It's about action. It's about going somewhere. It's about seeking something out. The substance of our faith is not a one and done prayer that we said when we were seven years old and we're good, but it's actually a continual process, especially when it gets hard and we don't exactly know where we're headed and we don't know what it's going to look like. That is the substance of our faith. But too often, because we live in a cultural Christianity, our faith has become something that is static, that one and done status prayer that we prayed and we're, we're good and, and we spend the rest of our lives just defending the decision that we made 20, 30, 40 years ago without living into it day by day or it becomes transactional. We, just, you know, we have this relationship with God like we do with our landlord. We signed a contract at a certain point in our lives and we say, well, God, I, I signed on the dotted line so you, you need to come and fix my refrigerator, you know, whatever it is. Like, it's very, like we have a professional relationship with God we hit them up when we need something, but you guys know the best landlords are the ones that you don't really have to interact with because everything's fine. But what these guys are reminding us is, no, our faith as Christians, as followers of Jesus Christ, is that it's this dynamic relational faith that we have where we're growing, we're moving, we're developing. So um, underneath each of your chairs, you'll find a little uh, clipboard and a pen And we're going to look at the three archetypes in this story, and we're going to pause, and I'm going to give you time to do some work with the Holy Spirit to kind of work through where do you see each of these three people in your lives. Um, And it's not a question of whether or not there's a Herod in you, there are chief priests in you, and if there's magi, they're there. 
It's do you have the courage to be open before the Holy Spirit to allow him to begin to speak to you about what that looks like in your life. So I'm going to kind of break that down, those three characters, give you a little bit of a historical understanding, and then try to tie it into what that looks like in our daily lives today. So number one, the Herod within us wants a token Jesus that defends our proud lifestyle. The Herod within us wants a token Jesus that defends our proud lifestyle. What do I mean by token? A token is essentially kind of like an idol. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a little symbol. It's, it's something that we can kind of put on the shelf. We can point and go, no, 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 no. I'm good because look what I've got. Sometimes we tokenize other people. Sometimes we tokenize Jesus, There's, you know, our, our, our job, whatever it might be. It's like we set up a little idol. We, the idol has no real power over our lives. And we just say, nope, I'm good because look what I've got. Okay. So who was Herod? Herod... Um, was there was a there was a large break in kings in Judea, Palestine, Israel? Kind of, it's been under a lot of names. If you remember, towards the end of the Old Testament, they're trying to reestablish themselves because Israel had been um, oppressed by a lot of different uh, ruling empires. There'd been Babylon. Persia, and then the Greeks kind of fill in the space between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and then the Romans enter in about about 60 years before Jesus is born. The Romans are now occupying Palestine. And so um, they're kind of on this conquest. The Roman Empire is spreading, 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 and they, they, they tend to absorb local cultures. They let them have some of their autonomy, um, but they, at the end of the day, have to kind of pledge allegiance to Caesar. And Herod was one of these guys. He was actually a brilliant military commander. Um, he was very loyal to the Roman Empire. He had fought some wars for them, and he was pretty successful. And so um, what happens there is Mark Antony, not the singer, um, the military genius of the Roman Empire, Cleopatra, all that stuff. Mark Antony says, you're great. We really like you. We're going to establish you as king over the province of Judea. And so uh, Herod becomes the first king of the Jews in a long time. And, you know, history suggests that Herod the Great was actually a little bit of a tyrant, um, that he came in and he ruled in the same way that he operated the military, um, and that he was actually the first person to build an aristocracy within Judea. So what that means is essentially he built kind of a ruling class, an elite class of people that were uh, economically and politically far above all the rest of Judea. And I've, I've mentioned it before that at the time of Jesus, we're looking at probably like a 90% poverty rate um, among the people of Judea. So there's just 10% and they've got a whole lot. And that was kind of Herod the Great kind of established those people. And everybody else was just being taxed um, up to their ears. So he's, he's established as the king of the Jews, which you know is a big deal because we've got David, Solomon, all these guys, um, which means that he was pretty convinced that he had the divine right to the throne and that it had been justified by the state, by the Roman Empire. And so in a way, we can say that Herod believed that he, he deserved what he had because God was on his side. Herod believed, and all the, the religious elite, they're probably telling him the same thing, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, like, oh yeah, you're God's chosen one, everything you decide is coincidentally what God wants, and he's kind of in this place. Um, so he's very threatened by this message from the Magi when they come along and say, hey, the king of the Jews has been born, we're just here to find him. He's like, uh, no, I'm the king of the Jews, what are you talking about? I have the divine right, I was established in this place, like, and so he's really threatened by the possibility of Jesus, and you wonder if there's a sneaking suspicion for King Herod that he knows he's a little bit of a fraud, he's a little bit of a fake, 
that his, his authority, his throne, isn't the true one. And it's interesting, it's not inherent within this story necessarily, but in the ancient world, whenever there was a falling star, uh, which might be a meteorite or whatever, um, that was often taken as a symbol that a ruler was about to fall. And indeed, there are stories of Roman emperors who went out and just massacred all the other leaders, just thinking, if there's enough blood spilt, then maybe I won't be the one to fall. So we could kind of read that into this story as well. And so what does all that speak to us about the Herod uh, that's, that's in our lives? I think we allow Herod uh, to live through us when we use Jesus to prop up our little thrones. So what happens? Herod hears this message. He feels threatened. Every, the ruling class, it says all of Jerusalem was shook. Um, but he says to them, oh, we'll find out where he is so that I can go and worship him. Okay, so Herod is threatened, but then he wants to go and worship him. But I think what Herod's plan really is to do is to say, is there some way that I can use this new arrival to my advantage to actually justify my claim to the throne? So when you and I, when we're Herod, we're a little bit threatened by the authority of King Jesus because that might cost us something. Jesus might cost us our position, our privilege, our rights to this, that, and the other. And as I've said many times before, I think in our culture, we're more motivated by our rights than we are by our responsibility to love. And when all of those things become threatened by the real Jesus that's present among us, we feel threatened. But our first move is to see, is there some way that I can commodify Jesus to justify the lifestyle that I want to live? And that's when we live into King Herod. So we justify ourselves rather than falling down and worshiping him. But then all of a sudden, when Jesus doesn't support us, we crucify him. And we find all these little ways out to explain, oh, that's not Jesus. He's not really like that. And we enter into that, that uh, conquering mentality of, oh, God's on my side. And all of a sudden, everything that I want is everything that God wants, right? My will and God's will just seem to be on the level with one another, And we actually use this little tokenized Jesus, this little idol that we've made of Jesus that sits on the shelf that we can point to to say, no, 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 I'm a Christian. We use that to justify our lives instead of us learning how to die to self, which is the central tenet of the Christian faith. And again, I think this comes from us thinking that Christian is a status that we have to defend for the rest of our lives. I I said the prayer, I got in, you know, I, I got marked in baptism, but now the rest of my life, however long that might be, I'm just defending the fact that I'm a Christian. And we enter into that kind of conquering mentality that Herod had rather than saying, oh no, my baptism was a symbol that I'm going to constantly be dying to myself. But Christian isn't a status that you're called to defend for the rest of your days. It's a continual process of learning to give yourself over to Jesus. That you are, as you are dying to self, you are constantly, you are, I think a better way to say is I am becoming Christian more and more day by day. There's a lot of not Christian in me still, but I'm day by day as I'm coming before him, as I'm opening up, as I'm worshiping him, he's doing something within me. So day by day, I'm a little bit more rooted in his kingdom reality and not the reality of my own little empire. So I'm going to give you a minute. And I just want you to question, take this question before the Lord and say, in what area of my life 
Do I need humility to come to Jesus with an open heart? Where has your heart been closed off that that's your little empire? You get to decide what that thing is for you. Maybe it's your job or a relationship or it's your bank account or, you know, there's all different things. We go, no, 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 this is my empire. Jesus doesn't get to touch that. But in some way, you subtly know what Jesus might be asking you there and you're holding him at arm's length. So just take a moment, just pray, just ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to you in what area of my life do I need humility to come to Jesus with an open heart? Let's take one minute. Amen. You can continue to write if the Lord's giving you something, but sometimes what I find really helpful is like the Lord will just give me a little bit of a nugget, and I know that I, I need to sit and reflect with that later on in the week. So I want to give you permission to do that. You know, this, this isn't a, a sprint. This is a marathon. So take your time to really process these things with God. So the second archetype that we're going to be looking at is the chief priests and the teachers of the law. And I believe that the chief priest within us knows lots of things about Jesus, but doesn't bother to seek him out and to know him. And you see that I'm using the word know twice there. Um, and I think this is always the most helpful because I think this is where English fails us. There's two words in Spanish for know. Can anybody give them to me? Well, say, give me a hand raise so I can, you're all just like, ba-ba-da. Anybody? Who's going to be bold? Jackie, go ahead. Huh? Two words in Spanish for to know. Stephen. Conocer and saber. Very good. Uh, Somebody give him a banana sticker. I I, I really appreciate this in Spanish, and this is true in other languages, um, but in English we don't necessarily have it. We just say no. Hey, do do you know Steve? Yeah, I know Steve. Saber is to know information, okay? You know data, you know facts, that kind of thing. And that's really important. But conocer, it's better translated as like to be familiar with. And so when you say, do you know Becky? I might say, yes, I know things about Becky. So saber is like she works for this organization. She has two kids and she's married to John. That's, I know facts about her. But conocer is like, are you familiar with, have you spent time with her? Do you know her? It's kind of a, a, a to know as in a place of intimacy. And I think that oftentimes we confuse these two things. So when we're looking at the archetype of the, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, what we're seeing is religious people, people who are already technically in that confuse things. This isn't an evangelism. This is, an, this is a word to the church. And so the chief priests 
they, they had the books. They were the experts. They knew what the scriptures said. And what we can even deduce is, judging by the prophecies in the Old Testament, most people knew when about the Messiah was supposed to show up. So when you look at the prophecies in Daniel and some other scriptures, they knew it's going to be about 400 to 450 years after the exile in Babylon that God is going to send his Messiah to rescue and redeem all of Israel. And so that put them right about in the first century, middle of the first century. And so in actuality, Messiahs were a dime a dozen in the first century in Judea. They were all over the place. I've spoken uh, of a few of them. There was the Bar Kokhba revolt after Jesus. That was a big military uh, rising uh, from the Jewish people, and they beat up Rome for about three years. Rome lays siege to Jerusalem and then flattens it. But there was people were always claiming to be this Messiah, and most of them were claiming that the Messiah was going to look like a military leader who was going to rise up, beat up Rome, reestablish our nation with our borders, and God is on our side. So the interesting thing is, the chief priests and the teachers on the law, they're the experts in the stories, in the scriptures. They knew the scriptures inside and out. They knew how to interpret them. So when Herod comes to these guys and he's like, hey, so where's this Messiah supposed to be born? They're immediately like, boom, it's right there. It's supposed to be in Bethlehem. But they don't do anything with that information. That's what I find fascinating. So they know exactly where the Messiah is to be born. They've got the facts right, but they don't make any move. And I think it's because they said they were, they're confusing their knowledge of God with actual intimacy with him, getting up, seeking, moving, finding out. Because I think in some way they too, just like Herod, are a little bit threatened that God might actually be doing something because they had become very comfortable with their status, with what religion had offered to them. It had given them also a place of privilege and power. So if Herod is kind of the political socioeconomic elite of the first century Judea, then these guys are kind of the religious elite. The systems, the institutions were working for them. So why would we go and find the king? We like the one that we've already got. So these guys knew all the information. They knew what to look for. But they didn't bother leaving the comfort of their books, their Bible studies, their podcasts, whatever, to actually go and find Jesus. And we see time and again in the story of Jesus that he confronts these chief priests, the teachers of the law. We can expand that to the Pharisees and the Sadducees who were kind of religious experts of the day, that he's constantly kind of tackling them in these ideas that many of them had given up on this idea of intimacy with God. They had a place of privilege and power in society, and Jesus keeps pushing them. It's about knowing God through me. And he even says this in John 5, 39 to 40, he's talking to these guys and he says, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Did you know that some of the greatest biblical scholars on the planet today are atheists? And they would recognize that. Because for them, it's about just about understanding it as a piece of literature and, and, and delving into the languages and all of that stuff. And all that stuff's valuable. I love that stuff. I'm a total nerd when it comes to like biblical scholarship and understanding this random Greek word or whatever. Like all of that matters, but it's not what the thing is for, okay? So when we talk about like the Bible being the word of God, for example, and that's a little W, I would say, 
the little word of God. What we're, we're not saying the Bible is like the handbook that I have for my Volkswagen jet. I had a little light blink on this week, and I'm like, okay, life, what do I do? Oh, page 288, this is what you do about this. I'm low on coolant. Boom, done, thanks, Bible. That's not, how, that's not what the Bible is for. When we, but sometimes we call the Bible the word of God, and we think it's this handbook that is just supposed to tell us what to do in life, and that's the best that we can hope for is just to obey the words on the page. And that's what Christianity is because we've actually closed ourselves off to the possibility of relationship here and now with the God that's revealed in Jesus. I've told this story many times before, but I find it absolutely fascinating. One of, uh, one of the most powerful saints of our history, it's St. Phil Vischer of VeggieTales. Perhaps you know of him. <laughs> How many of you are of VeggieTales generation? Where is my hairbrush and my little... Uh, Cebu and so on and so forth. So there's a fascinating interview with him. This is probably over a decade ago now. And Phil Vischer said that he, you know, he, had, this, he had this whole big ministry. He was doing VeggieTales. He's doing all this kids programming for Sunday school and whatnot. And he said he realized at some point that the main scope of his work was to teach children moral lessons using the Bible, using Bible stories to teach kids how to live moral lives. But he wasn't using scripture to lead children into relationship with Jesus. And he said he was incredibly convicted that he had missed the mark for so long. But I think he is of a generation of American Christians who have dramatically missed the point. That I'd say a huge part of evangelicalism over the past 60 years has said the best that we can hope for is to teach moral lessons to people using the Bible. But what happens when we enter into that world is we enter into legalism and we start using the Bible to beat other people over the head and say, well, you're not following the letter of law and you're not doing this and you're not doing that. And we miss that the Bible is intended to lead us into relationship with Jesus. So when we say the Bible is infallible, what we're saying is the Bible will never fail us if we allow it to lead us to Jesus because that's what it's there for. The Bible submits to Jesus right? That's why we're Christians and not Biblians. And indeed, this is what Phil Vischer said. He said, Biblicism is the greatest threat to Christianity in the American church today. It's not atheism. How many of you were, you were all prepped to go up against the atheists in the 90s, right? It's not the New Age movement. How many of you anticipated that we were going to kind of enter back into looking at when Jupiter and Saturn aligned? I didn't expect that one to come, but we're there. Okay. You know, that's kind of the world we're in today. Um, it's biblicism. It's when we think that just learning moral lessons from the Bible, that's Christianity. Because that is so much harder to be convicted of. Because we think that we're in the right place because we're doing Bible correctly. But we don't know the God that that Bible is there to point us to. And so I think we get trapped in this sense of religiosity when we don't allow. And this isn't just about the Bible when we do not allow our faith practices to lead us to Jesus, whether that's pouring over scripture, whether that's gathering together on Sundays and throughout the week, whether that's a life informed by prayer, when it's generosity, when it's worship, all of these practices that we have in this ecosystem of the Christian faith, it's religiosity when we think it's just by doing those things that we're good, that we're in. Because what happens before long when you think it's about those processes is they don't deliver. Just 
going to church every Sunday or reading your Bible as if you're just checking off a box to kind of get God off your back. Again, that kind of transactional religion means that it doesn't work. And then what happens? We become bitter. We become cynical as Christians. But rather than doing the work of seeing what's the motivation within me where I'm holding those practices in the wrong space to say, oh, that's the problem. The church is the problem. The Bible is the problem. Worship is a big crock because they're just like manipulating me through beauty or whatever it might be. We blame the system for something that can only be revealed within ourselves because we're cynical because it didn't work. The answer to that that religiosity that we see in the chief priests is not to abdicate religion. I think that's one of the tragic things, certainly of my generation, but I think in our modern era, is we say, oh, religion is harmful and, and, oh gosh, the word toxic, my goodness, we'll get on that some other day, but toxic this and poisonous that, and that person is toxic. We want to blame everybody else when the whole problem of those things don't work is within us but we don't have the tools to go inward and say, what are my motivations for entering into these things in the first place? Am I coming to the Bible to justify myself or to allow the Bible to interpret my life, to lead me into relationship with Jesus? And so that brings us to the second question because I think cynicism is the byproduct of a lack of curiosity. The chief priests and the teachers of the law, they lacked curiosity because it was working for them until it didn't. And that's when we become cynical when it comes to our faith. So I want you to take one minute just spend some time with the Lord. What is causing me to lose curiosity in my faith journey? What is causing me to lose curiosity in my faith journey? Amen. Feel free to continue writing, as I said, or just get a little bit of something that you can take into the rest of the week that you and the Lord can do some business. So we've looked at Herod as a lack of humility. We've looked at the chief priests as a lack of curiosity. And that brings us to the Magi, who I think typify both of those qualities. The Magi within us may not have all the answers or understand where we're headed. But we are moving toward Jesus no matter what. 
So who are these guys? There's no mention of them being three of them. There's no mention of them being kings. The word magi comes from the the Persian word magi, which we get the word magician from. Okay, so these guys are magicians. They're astrologers that are from the east, which is, you know, Babylon. And in the biblical narrative, whenever you see east, it's a symbol of like, hey, you can't get any farther from God when you're east. So in the beginning, like, you know, Genesis 3, um, Adam and Eve are sent out from the garden, and they, every generation just keeps moving east until they end up in Shinar, which is Babylon, where we see the Tower of Babel. And so later on, you know, when Israel is taken into exile, they're taken into Babylon, and it was a spiritual Babylon as well as being a physical Babylon. It's like, hey, you can't get any farther from Yahweh than you are right now. That was the kind of idea. So these guys are coming from that place. These are those people. Ugh. they get to be a part of the, of the story, of the Jesus story. So these guys, they're probably descendants of the astrologers who were in the court of the king during the time of Daniel. And if you know the story of Daniel, Daniel was taken in captivity into Babylon, um, but because of his faithfulness to God, he actually rose up through the ranks very quickly to become an advisor to the king at the time. And he was always kind of duking it out with these astrologers because they were like, well, the stars say this thing and, and that's maybe what it is. And, uh, and Daniel speaks out of a place of Yahweh's wisdom and eventually they really come to see his power. So these guys are probably 400 years later, they're the descendants of those guys because it's a family business. So they probably also, because of the exile, they had the Jewish Holy Scriptures, they're reading it, they're interpreting it, and they realize, wow, this king of the Jews, this Messiah that's going to come from Yahweh and save the whole world, he's been born. We need to go and find him. And astrology was a really big deal in the ancient world. Uh, it, was, it was all the rage. Everybody loved it. You know, they had, the, they had the 800 lines that you could call up and find out your fortune. And people are doing tarot cards. And it's, everyone's having a great time just because astrology is obviously a hard science and it's really cool. But this Jewish scriptures actually forbade it. Okay? So in Judaism, it's like, no, 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 we don't do astrology. That's, we don't look at the stars to find the fortune. We have God, and he's leading us. Uh, and they talk a lot in that about witchcraft. And again, I think it's so fascinating that that's a big thing now. And I love when people like kind of leave behind Christianity, like, oh, this thing's all fake. Moon water, you know? <laughs> it's fine. Um, we're all, there's something within us that knows that there's a spiritual reality, and we're trying to find it, you know? But these guys, I think this is a really big deal. They're foreigners. They're pagans. They're astrologers, which is a big no-no in Judaism. But they're the ones that actually seek out Jesus. When everybody else that's supposed to know, the religious folks, they're the ones that completely miss it. So they bring these three gifts to Jesus, and it's kind of a pro prophetic announcement of who he is. Number one, they bring gold, which is a symbol that he's a king, okay? Gold is always the symbol of king. So when we say Jesus Christ, Christ isn't Jesus' last name, it's a title. Christ and then Messiah in the Jewish, or in the Hebrew, and it means the anointed one, which is the word for king. So this is the king that God is raising up. Number two, they bring frankincense. That incense was burned in the temple in Jewish religion and in all, most other religions as kind of a symbol of the presence of God, okay? So, you know, it's kind of the smoke goes up and this is like, this is what God looks like. We're recognizing the spiritual realm. So incense is very much the tool of the priest. So they're saying, 
Jesus is the king that God has pronounced. He's also the high priest once and for all, the mediator between God and man. And then the third gift that he bring, they bring is myrrh, which is a spice that's used for embalming dead bodies to try to, try to prevent the body from decay. And so in that, they're also, they also recognize something is going to happen with this child where he's going to grow up and he's going to die and somehow that's, the death is going to bring the salvation of the whole world. And so what's amazing is these pagan astrologers that shouldn't know, they shouldn't have the right answers, they're the ones that recognize who he is because of the gifts they bring. They go, yep, he's a king. Yep, he's the priest. Yep, he's going to die a death that's going to bring the salvation to the whole world. And so what does that look like in us? What is the magi in us? We are following the magi's cue when we live a life of humble curiosity with Jesus as our North Star. When we know, I don't understand it, I don't have all of the kind of saber knowledge that the chief priest had, but I know that I'm headed towards him because I'm following the signs and I'm, and I'm accepting those prophetic pronouncements of who he is to be. Even if I don't get it, I'm continually moving towards Jesus as my North Star because there's just something about him that I can't stay away. There's just something about him. I love Frederick Beekner, who was a, a writer and a pastor in the previous century. He said, I can't, when it comes to Jesus, I can't, prove a, I can't prove a thing about him, but there's just something about him, the way that he holds me, the way that he sees me. See, this is the language of intimacy. And I think curiosity is the antidote to our judgmental hearts, to our cynical hearts to be curious, to allow that movement towards Jesus to break us of some of the idolatrous understandings we've had of him or when we think that we've actually captured him and put him on the mantelpiece to prove that we're Christians, when he breaks out of that and we're continually being confronted with our own idolatry in our curiosity and seeking him out and recognizing, yes, it's a, that's a lifestyle and he is worthy of it. If all I do is seek him for the rest of my days, is he worthy or does he get three years to show up and if he doesn't, I'm just going to go and start doing tarot card readings or whatever it is, you know? And that's the power of what we're recognizing today. And so the question I want to challenge you with next as you're kind of reflecting with the spirit of Jesus is what can I do practically to seek Jesus in the new year? And another way for me to say this would be, if I ask you, do you love Jesus? And you say, yes, I'm going to say, how? How do you love him? If you love me, well, what does that look like? Love has to have action. Asking, seeking, knocking, that's the quality of love. It's not some ab abstract declaration. Tell me how you love me. Show me how you love me. Show, you, show me how you love Jesus. And here at the beginning of the year, we have an opportunity to ask the Lord for what are those disciplines that might help me to seek him out. Maybe they're old, familiar things that you've been doing for 30 years. Maybe it's something new, a new type of prayer, a new approach to scripture, a new way of connecting with other believers on the journey. But just ask the Lord, even just for two new ways that you can practically seek out Jesus this year. Let's take a minute.
Amen. So again, you can continue to write. We're going to enter into worship. I want to invite you to stand with me. May Epiphany remind us to cultivate humble curiosity as we seek out King Jesus. I think humble curiosity is the antidote to this Herodian fear we have of loss of power, of privilege, and position, our pride. And humble curiosity is the antidote to the chief priest within us in our smugness, in our knowledge, and how many podcasts we consume or what we know about the Bible. But it also might be the antidote to where we feel a little bit numb in our faith journeys because we've made it about a transaction and not about being relational. But we have to ask God to give us a heart that is humble and curious, that that becomes the trajectory of our journey with him and with one another. So I'm going to pray and we're going to enter into worship. Father, I thank you for this story of the Magi. We thank you for this day, Epiphany, El Dia de los Tres Reyes, that today we get to remember that this good news isn't just for the Jewish people, but it's good for all of us. All of us in this room, we get a part to play in this story. But what it asks of us is that we actively cultivate a humility and a curiosity to seek you out. May we never take for granted that we're already in. May we never take it for granted that we're good, you're on our side, we don't have to worry about anything else in terms of our own status and privilege, but that we'd always be laying down our lives before you day after day and seeing that's the substance of our faith as we seek, as we ask, as we knock. And so, Holy Spirit, I give you permission to continue to do whatever you need to do in this room so that we all leave transformed by you. Speak to us, for we are listening. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.